What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got the crew, Alex Audi. Hello. Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Hunter Marsden. Hey, hey. And Gabby Magnuson. What's up? Um, Jake broke his hand doing <laughs> You Don't Want to Know What. <laughs> You might have to edit that part out. I don't know. So two, <laughs> two quick hits before we get into it. One is the oh God, this is so weird. Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Diddy. He goes by many names, right? <laughs> he like owned hip hop in the 90s for better and for worse, mostly for worse. And he issued a public letter for on behalf of his recent corporate venture called Revolt TV and he appropriate he he calls out corporate america for gradual progress toward black america and race relations and he calls them out saying if you love us pay us we we can't handle gradual progress anymore it's time for revolution what does revolution mean pay my company more money there's like all kinds of pathologies going on here i was talking with a buddy over the weekend about this he started this adventure revolt TV thing specifically, or at least a bunch of people involved were trying to kind of take back the ownership share from white corporate America back to black America. The, the distribution of wealth at the top, that 1% of oligarchs, you want to fracture that 1% and make half of that 1% black people, let's say. And so that's Diddy's attitude. He's obviously... If he's not a billionaire, he's pretty close to it. So like he's in the oligarchic class. Well, a lot of people don't know, although everyone on Twitter seemed to know this because he was getting his fucking ass lit up. People don't know that like when he was running Bad Boy he, Entertainment in the 90s, he was fucking over all his artists, including Biggie, right? One of the greatest of all time. And he wasn't paying them. He, he was literally like pimping them, exploiting them. And then when he set up this revolt TV thing, which is supposed to be, I don't know, taking on the white power structure, he tried to arrange, and there's people testifying to this on Twitter, he tried to arrange for some black Americans to host specific shows on the platform, but not offering to pay them. So it's like, this guy's a billionaire. It wouldn't take much to offer like a token amount of payment, but he's not going to pay them at all. And so the reason Diddy was getting lit up about all this is because his letter, his public letter to fucking corporate America and to General Motors and shit, it's all using woke language. It's all anti-colonial rhetoric. He talks about indifferences, siding with the oppressor, silence is violence and all that stuff. He's using all that language to justify asking for more money for himself. Right. It's self-aggrandizement, but like draped in anti-colonial rhetoric. There's so much there. It would warrant its own episode to like unpack this and the psychoses of Diddy. But I just wanted to put it out there because one, I don't really see anybody talking about this. Two, this is like the wrong. This does damage. This does violence to the cause. Right. To Black Lives Matter, to those who actually take a critical pose, who actually when they use quotes, from post-colonial and anti-colonial studies, like they're trying to redress actual grievances, actual oppression. Diddy is one of the oppressors. He is a slave master in modern America. There's a huge track record of it. It's just wild. It's wild that he would 
he would take this pose publicly. But I see a lot of people calling him out. And so I just wanted to uh, flag that because it's fascinating. I love this podcast. I feel like I would never, ever have ever seen this or like the take on P. Diddy if it wasn't for <laughs> you bringing it up. That's legit. Knowing he's like sus as. Yeah, I mean, and also like he's the he's the face of neoliberal hip hop. You know, hip hop started in New York really? or whatever in the '90s. Like he's the one that turned it into that candy, pansy ass stuff where it's like you're making it for a mainstream <laughs> audience, but in, in order to yeah. make it mainstream, you shift it from talking about what's going on in your neighborhood and what's going on in America to making it rain at the strip club. And like bragging about how many chains you got. Like he turned no way. He turned the whole fucking enterprise into this like bling bling thing. And it's like Wait, that's crazy. Yeah. And like so I have a I have another issue with that or hang up with that. Like and then also like on top of all of this, I was deep in the nineties into the West Coast, East Coast beef. And he was the face of East Coast hip hop at the time. It's actually, yeah, it was really Biggie, right? It was Biggie versus Tupac. Puffy was the guy behind Biggie. And he was the one who kind of put Biggie on uh, or slash exploited him. And then Tupac was like the main voice leading the res resistance. The the fucking beef <laughs> on the <laughs> modern language for this old. Showing beef. your biases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I was deep on the West Coast, right? But yeah, so like I also have... I was I was rabidly anti East Coast uh, hip hop for a long time, although I where got, does DMX I fit in here? Is he, is he going to get a shout out? Oh, good point. So we actually have an AMA question about DMX. So I'll hold that. But yeah, all right, for sure, shout out. Oh, the second shout out. I don't. This is more of like a. It's not really a shout out, but like. Patrick Porter, who's a classical realist, he he has a refreshing voice. I disagree with him a lot, but sometimes I actually have surprising convergences with him. He 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 wrote this piece for like Australian Financial Review about Australia needing to not go nuclear, but like because that's not socially acceptable to say Australia should go nuclear. <laughs> but he pushed the limit of what is socially acceptable to say, which is that Australia should prepare to go nuclear and Holy like, fuck. or at least at the very least have the conversation about preparing to go nuclear. And this is not coming out of nowhere. Hugh White talked about this a year or two ago. Hugh White didn't make this shit up. I was meeting- I think a decade ago even. Hugh White? Yeah, I think he's been pretty consistent. I mean, the China Choice has has a, a couple mentions of the nuclear issue, which was written in 2009 or something. What? Dude, everything is so old now. Oh my God. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking it was like 2015, but I guess, or maybe it's like, they, they issued an Oxford University Press version because it was initially an Australian publisher. Maybe that one came out later. Okay. I, I see 2012. I just double checked that. Yeah. Anyways, it's all, it's all old now. But yeah, this, like, I remember meeting in 2015 with Australians in this, like, trilateral dialogue with the Japanese. And at that time, I was hearing from the Australian counterparts, they're all like strategic studies guys. So like they're legit, they're smart, they're like broadly well known, and they're not crazy. And they were saying exactly what Patrick Porter was saying, but circa 2015. And in 2015, you know, like the worldview of all Asia and Pacific countries was this like EU kind of thing where we were living in McDonald's peace theory, you know? And then you have this cadre of strategic studies, sort of real politique guys who actually 
circle in and out of the the Australian national security establishment. So like they socialize with the people who make the decisions and they are very quietly explaining how like U.S. extended deterrence commitments to Australia, which are already kind of like weird and ambiguous and halfway made up. Um, there's a longer story there. But basically that stuff is it's not popular in Australia, but in the national security community, it's seen as like essential. It's this prerequisite of Australian security, the nuclear umbrella. And so I don't agree with Patrick Porter's take here, but it's not a new thing. And it's only a question of like, how loud is the volume on this kind of voice within Australia about needing to go nuclear, right? And in the context of America, right, which is like what Australia has really staked its security on up to this point, America completely flaking out over the past four years, you see as loyal of an ally as Australia is, they've also made some decisions that look like hedging with their force structure, with the ability to conduct independent operations, specifically against the Chinese. And so if you're girding yourself for a world where there might be more Trumps to come in the US, then it makes a certain kind of sense that like you would want to go nuclear. And so I said on Twitter, I was like, Chris Rock did this stand-up thing in the 90s where he was talking about O.J. Simpson murdering his wife. And he's like, I'm not saying it's okay that he did it, but I understand. And like, that's kind of how I feel about this Australia <laughs> nuclear thing. Like, I'm not saying it's okay for Australia to go nuclear, but I understand, you know. Is it shaping up to be a real 90s episode here? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I don't know if nukes would make me feel safer living here. Um, you know, I, I think what's been most interesting uh, to me since I got to Australia is just sort of the middle power mentality that's really um, pervasive here. The girl you know, power Australia, mentality? The what? middle power mentality. Oh, middle power. <laughs> yeah. So Australia, you know, it, it, it sees itself as sort of this distant island. And, and um, at the same time, it's part of Asia and not quite Asian. It looks to the United States and to Europe for sort of the cultural, historical affinities. But its security is very much um, hinged on the U.S. alliance, as you say. But, you know, the nuclear debate has gone off and on uh, for decades now. And I, I don't really see the point personally. You know, I don't, I don't think Australia's national security is really impacted uh, by any external security threats uh, on an existential level. No, it seems to be a very elite conversation. Like, it's not I don't, I don't have any, maybe you see different, but like, I don't see any sense that this is like a popular desire in any way. It's just, there's a community of people who have a particular way of thinking and it appeals to them. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. Sweet. So for the first question for Prediction Market this week, following the arrival of Special Envoy Christian Bergener on Friday, will we will there be any cessation of hostility in Myanmar before July? Well, so Myanmar is uh hunters beat even more than mine, but I'm gonna say like fucking no way. Like there's no I don't see any reason why the junta will climb down from basically a deep civil war at this point. No. Special envoy isn't gonna change that. So was the question before July? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting timeline, right? A few months. So ASEAN, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is having a special summit on Myanmar 
uh, in just over a week. And it's possible if ASEAN is able to have some tough talks with Myanmar, as they have in the past, they could theoretically convince the junta to uh, halt hostilities, but it's unlikely. And as various ethnic armed groups in the country increasingly align with the protest movement against the military, if anything, conflict's going to spiral out of control and worsen. I'm not optimistic about uh, Myanmar's conflict stopping personally. You sound like a CNN analyst. (laughs) That's a good thing. Right. So for the second question, will the US or any other nation boycott the Beijing Winter Olympic Games? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm going to say... Actually, yes, but don't ask me who. There's a there's a <laughs> lot like the the Xinjiang the Uyghur shit is very mainstream now. Like I I saw literally this morning, there's a, a long form New Yorker article going deep into the the travesty or the plight of Uyghur oppression. It's just it's on the radar of everybody, to the point where like h and m and all of these corporations are trying to distance themselves from any kind of like you know Uyghur forced labor in their supply chains what's happening seems to be bigger than um bigger than government decision making like bigger than statecraft and so i think that the anti there's some like civil society there is some anti-china sentiment that's just i don't know deeply racist but there's also the same kind of civil society opposition to China, uh, to the CCP specifically, that has the same kind of righteous indignation as like the Tibet stuff in the 90s. I'm seeing that now with the Uyghurs more and more. And I feel like it's going to, somebody is going to take a moral stand with statecraft in order to appeal to that righteous indignation demographic, surely. And I think a civil society is organizing more and more to implement something like um, a BDS movement against China, which is wild. And that's something to watch. BDS being boycott, divest, sanction. Because like we think of sanctions against China or not as something that like the State Department would do, but or a foreign ministry would do. That's actually less impactful than if transnational civil society were to try and implement the same thing and it's something that governments can't control so yeah i'm gonna say somebody somebody's gonna boycott the winter olympics for sure and for the last one following on from last week given russia's continued aggression in ukraine and the recent revelation that russian private military contractors have directly engaged in war crimes in the central african republic will any new international sanctions be placed in moscow before july this year Probably not. There aren't going to be UN sanctions on Russia, first of all, ever, for very obvious reasons. Russia's on the Security Council. But I think we talked maybe last week or two weeks ago about how Russia still has the EU by the balls with oil and gas. So uh, I I just don't see... I could see the US sanctioning Russia, actually, but nobody else. And what's going on with Russia in Ukraine, this question is worded funny slash interestingly, like, I don't see any connection really at all to how Russia thinks about Ukraine and occupying territory slash annexing territory and creating a strategic buffer with Europe. That's like one thing. I feel like that has no connection to the shit that it does in Africa. That's totally separate, particularly because it's like, it's these PMCs, the private military contractors. That's just right? Mercenary is going to mercenary. You have this militarist authoritarian system and it's a kleptocracy. So you mix those things together. What do you get? Private military contractors. They got to go do shit. Where are you going to do shit? Well, the best place to do shit 
to run amok, you know, with militaristic capital is Africa. So, yeah. Cool. That does us for a prediction market. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. So, my first is from Benjamin R. Young, friend of the pod, the North Korea analyst, Cold War historian, IR scholar, and soon-to-be professor at VCU. So, recently, CNN had released the statistics that nearly 40% of U.S. Marines are declining COVID vaccines. So, to this, Young tweets, After the involvement of some military veterans on January 6th and this hesitancy towards the vaccine, I think military academies and war colleges need to update their curriculum. Less cloud sweats and fear-based great power competition, more on racism, domestic terrorism, and pandemics. It's not going to be good when the military is essentially a Republican institution and the intelligence community becomes a Democratic institution. And that's where we're heading. And I thought this was like really good commentary, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a friend of the pod. Uh, super right. I mean, less, <laughs> less Klauswitz, less fear-based uh, great power competition, more about racism, domestic terrorism, and pandemics, right? This is the threat matrix that like national security is just not not optimized for, not prepared for, really. And um, that really starts with how military officers are being trained, right? And so there is a strong case that the war colleges have spent too much dwell time on these classic military tactic strategy, you know, books that venerate the old white guys, uh, even though there is some good stuff to learn there. And just completely divested, completely blind spot when it comes to the negative externalities that result from your so-called strategic decisions, right? Like when you pursue great power competition and you stoke anti-Asian hate crimes, right? That's a negative externality, man. And the way we think about strategy in the military sense doesn't factor that shit in. But at the grand strategic level, you have to. It's all-encompassing. You have That's your responsibility, and it's bad strategy to not understand the risks or the downsides of your decisions. It's, it's fundamentally, it's shit strategy. And so the idea that you're like training a generation of people to venerate these old classics, but then not teaching them how to think broadly enough uh, about threats in the modern era or how to deal with the risks of doing these competitive things that you love to do, it's irresponsible. So uh, I really liked this tweet, yeah. I just don't understand how military personnel that could be deployed anywhere in the world can't like can choose to not have a vaccine i know i don't get it either when i was in uh when i was active duty it was in the middle of the iraq war and there was this scare about saddam hussein releasing anthrax on soldiers on like in the battlefield or like sending people were afraid that saddam hussein was going to send terrorists over to america with anthrax bombs and it was completely completely fucking made up it was complete hysteria but it triggered this, this movement in the name of national security for people to get the anthrax vaccine. And the anthrax vaccine was intense. Like it was gnarly. It had a lot of side effects. There were a lot of risks associated with it. It like physically scarred you for life in some cases. And we didn't have like 
it wasn't like the COVID vaccine now where there's so much attention on it and the science behind it is like reasonably robust. It was much more sketchy. And um, I'd never heard of this, dude. And so they were they were making us take the vaccine, active duty military in the name of like guarding against fucking Saddam Hussein. And I was me and like a couple of my buddies. I mean, we were against the Iraq war anyway, but like obviously you're serving. So you don't orders is orders. You know what I mean? But this idea of like being ordered to take the anthrax when it was going to be physically dangerous to us um, and we were doing it in the name of something that we did not believe in, we were staunchly opposed and we were we were organizing this never happens in the military. We were organizing grassroots within our units, uh, a bunch of us pre Twitter to pre-fucking-signal to try and, like, convince our unit commanders to somehow allow us to opt out of taking the vaccine. And it was really going to come down to, like, whether we were going to violate orders or not, which is a huge fucking deal. And we were—it could have ruined our careers. And we never had to make that choice, thankfully, mercifully, because some, like— district court judge ruled that the military was not allowed to require us to take the vaccine. So like, I feel like this is lost history because like no one's ever that I've seen talked about this, but up until like 2004 ish, they were making the military take the anthrax vaccine despite the risks and the side effects. And, you know, me and my buddies were standing in a line basically waiting to take this bullshit deciding whether we were going to like end our careers over this like are we going to be conscientious objectors over this fucking thing or not you know and we got a stay of execution basically that said you guys you have to let soldiers opt out of these vaccines but it was specific to the anthrax vaccine it wasn't like a general blanket thing and so i'm surprised given the science given that covid is like a national security thing and it's real Right. The anthrax worry was scaremongering. It wasn't real. I feel like this is totally different. Right. And opting out of it should not be an option if you're active duty military. Like it's part of it's it's literally part of protecting America and the world to get the vaccine. You know, like you're violating your oath of service in a way. Yeah, I think that's important that there's a national security dimension to this, right? Mm -hmm. Once we get America vaccinated, we can start distributing vaccines around the world. And it's good for both America's health and its soft power and a number of uh, national security uh, aspects as well. And this is not going to this is not the last pandemic we're ever going to have, you know, like it almost feels to me as if this is some trial run for humanity and if we have a a worse kind of pandemic in the future, we don't want a bunch of precedents that say people can just like in the name of freedom, not do things that end up harming society. Like that will be much more devastating when it's a much more devastating pandemic. Yeah. Even if we get through this one, which, uh, you know, seems out of the woods yeah. at this point, it seems like we have not uh, done a terrific job, uh, you know, for the first sort of go. Especially America, yeah. Well, from one depressing topic to another, I suppose. <laughs> so, here's my second read from Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project and senior foreign policy fellow at the Brookings Institute. So she tweets, one thing India and America have to get better at, America. 
understanding historical baggage it has in India and how what might be seen as innocuous or normal steps in the U.S. will be perceived in India. India. Understanding everything the U.S. does is not a grand plan targeting India, or even just a grand plan. So South Asia isn't exactly my area of expertise, so I thought I'd throw it here. Yeah, I mean, Tanvi's very smart on this India stuff. Um, and sure. She's making a good point, too, which is like the clashing perceptions, clashing um, cultural baggage. The U- India takes a pretty, I would almost call it like anti-Western stance toward America, toward Europe, toward like, right, it was a colony of the British Empire, right? The, the jewel in the crown or whatever. Um, And so like they have that anti-colonial baggage. That's why they were non-aligned during the Cold War. They have all huge problems, especially right now with with illiberalism, even like shades of authoritarianism, frankly. But they're still an electoral democracy. Um, And the fact that they hold elections every once in a while and they have for a long time, it endears India to America, like within the strategic community, because it gets it gets classified as a democracy and therefore a friendly, and it's big enough and it has enough heft uh, to at least be a counterbalance to China in its own neighborhood. And so there's a lot of like romanticism almost within the national security establishment in Washington about India. A lot of like optimism that India is like the next great ally. And a lot of that's unspoken um, or it's spoken in private, but I, like, I've been in these conversations and it's precisely why the U.S. is always giving India a pass compared to other countries. Like why India's nuclear program gets ushered in as a friendly, gets to be treated as like a good standing member of the community of nuclear states and all of that. All of that colors the American view, but the reality is always and has always been that India is going to India. You almost, you, if you know that, you know enough not to have two wild-eyed expectations about what India will or won't do. You know, they have no desire to be an actual ally, but certainly not a client state of any Western nation. They want to run their own shit. And this anti-colonial tradition creates a lot of skepticism about uh, America. And so like what Tanvi is tweeting, she's subtweeting this whole like America's Navy, the seventh fleet issued some statement about how they were conducting freedom of navigation operations that challenge one of India's maritime claims. Um, and Indian like Twitterati got all fucking incensed about this. Like how, you know, we're supposed to be your like great quad friend or whatever. And you're challenging our maritime claims. Like, what is this? Is the shit? Fonops are what you do against China, and you're doing them against us. And so they were reading a great, like, malignness almost into American actions. But America does Fonops like everywhere, all the time. Like, this is just a thing. And it's, it's actually illustrative that for the US, it's a stupid way of asserting principle. I, I think it's silly, but the fact is America uses FONOPS to assert principle. And so it's it almost dials down the significance of American FONOPS in the South China Sea against China. Because it's like, this. oh, this isn't narrowly about China. It is about something that America just does globally, especially in Asia, you know. And like, so I think that's what she's responding to here. Because India was like, oh, grand conspiracy. Why are you attacking us? 
And obviously for America, that's not where their head is on something like this. So I've just got uh, two tweets, one from Daniel Denver, who actually hosts a podcast for Jacobin, the uh, lefty magazine, like hyper left, like very left magazine. He just says, canvas today for taxing the rich. I spoke to a Trump supporter who did not like this idea. He complained that over the last year, everyone wants to eliminate class distinctions and gender difference too. And then he says, you can't separate social and economic fights, even if you wanted to. And yeah. this yeah, this is a very good insight. This is, I think most people on the left actually take for granted, or at least they should, because it's been written about extensively, the interconnectedness of all of these issues, like of, of it's basically intersectionality, right? The resistance to oppression of women uh, against the prison industrial complex, against white supremacy, against oligarchy. It's all connected, right? And the root cause is this dense, fucked up mix of white supremacy, of oligarchy, of patriarchy, of militarism. And it, it all goes together. And the way that in like the technocratic you know, liberal enlightenment view, when we want to analyze things, we deconstruct them, we reduce them, right? We dissect them. And there's merit to doing that sometimes. But when that's the only way you're able to think critically, it, it leads you to not see what's actually going on and not be able to address adequately what's going on. And so the argument of a lot of rat like angela davis uh on the left argues about this like she's always talking about how these things go together right you can't just claim that like addressing the class distinction through public policy is going to be enough or addressing gender different gender inequality is going to be enough right or just racial inequality is going to be enough it has to be that these fights are all connected. And I think that's true. And he's highlighting here, Daniel Denver's tweet is highlighting how this is true, right? But also, even if it's not true, you have to take that position strategically in order to like have sufficient collective action to oppose power. Like power never gave anything up voluntarily, only by force, right? And so you have to have numbers which means you have to have solidarity across issues. There has to be a, there has to be an indivisibility about this problem set. Uh, and that's the only basis on which you can have activism that will actually make a difference, you know. So I thought there was like a lot here that was just worth sort of underscoring. This tweet was really interesting to me because it's something I've been seeing a little bit of recently where a lot of people are commenting that like, oh, you know, we're socially left but economically conservative. And Ugh. that doesn't make sense to me at all. That's which some I 90s thought, bullshit. Like, yeah. That's like, <laughs> yeah that's like, that was very fashionable to be like that once upon a time, you know? Ugh, fucking Clinton shit. There's <laughs> a bad taste in my mouth. Um, second tweet from James Millward, uh, big, big deal historian of China. He writes a lot about um, the Uyghurs in Central Asia. And he's responding to a Financial Times article by, you know, Singapore's Kishore Mabubani, who's saying a very Mabubanian thing. So Mabubani writes in the Financial Times that uh, Biden should, quote unquote, summon the courage 
to reverse America's China policy, which is to say to go back to Obama or pre-Obama, the engagement detente China policy. And James... Classic Mabubani. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's <laughs> such a Mabubani move. And James Millward just says, apparently reasonable argument about Chinese success today, but ignoring the atrocities in Xinjiang makes it meaningless. It's like saying the PRC was doing great in 1968, except for the Cultural Revolution. Xinjiang issue is overtaking all else until the CCP backs off of its genocide. I think that's it, right? You can't take the good without the bad, right? If you want to engage China, you have to do so in a way that doesn't turn a blind eye to Xinjiang. And this is the formula that the Western, quote unquote, Western governments have failed to come up with, um, which is like, you're still engaging with China in this old school way. And you're sort of looking for alternatives, but you're not actually implementing any alternatives quite yet. And we're talking about a genocide, bro. And there's like no sign of it stopping. And so you have to make a values-based decision here, or you have to take into account at least values, unless you're just going to be the real politique, like we're all just realists now kind of thing. Unless you're going to go down that path and just own it, you have to not ignore what's going on. And that's why I like that mainstream outlets are talking about Xinjiang now um, and that civil society is mobilizing. But yeah, like you... Just the the idea that you can make this old school Mabubani type argument about China, rising China, Sinocentric order, all that shit, that, that is like the peaceful rise garbage that was pre-genocide, okay? We're in a different world now. This kind of argument is morally egregious. Let's jump into armchair analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. All right. For this week's armchair analysis, I've selected an article by Richard Bush, Bonnie Glaser, and Ryan Haas called Don't Help China by Hyping Risk of War Over Taiwan. So they start by saying a growing chorus of officials and experts in the United States has been raising alarm about the risk of a Chinese attack against Taiwan. So you see this in the news quite often, right? But the authors argue that such doomsday predictions deserve interrogation. They cite Chinese attacks on the Indian border last year, China's expanded more assertive presence in the South China Sea, bullying smaller neighbors, its incursions into Taiwan's airspace, and the fact that the PLA Navy has grown to probably have more ships than the US Navy at this point. But they say, as troubling as the trend lines of Chinese behavior are, it would be a mistake to infer that they represent a prelude to an unalterable catastrophe. China's top priority now and in the foreseeable future is to deter Taiwan independence rather than compel unification. So they say that Beijing is confident in its ability to do so, and Taiwanese are pretty realistic or sober-minded in realizing that declaring independence would come with enormous risks. And they also mentioned that every Chinese leader since Mao has clamored about the need to reunify Taiwan with the mainland and that she is no different here. They also say that she is unlike Xi Jinping is unlikely to see that in his lifetime. So the authors argue that Beijing has incentives to avoid war both domestic and international. Therefore, Beijing has opted for softer tools of coercion, including cyber economic coercion and diplomatic isolation of Taiwan. And Taiwan's learned to live with this reality. 
So the authors acknowledge that China does pose a real threat to Taiwan's security. It's not just military, however. If American policymakers want to help Taiwan, they'll need to go beyond focusing on the military threat. They also need to modernize the U.S.-Taiwan economic relationship, help Taiwan diversify its trade ties, and provide platforms for Taiwan to earn dignity and respect on the world stage. You know, there's so many articles you see from time to time in the national interest, foreign mm -hmm. policy, and elsewhere uh, that really focus on the security threat that China poses to Taiwan, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we haven't seen sort of the imminent uh, military push for reunification by force. Yeah. So in conclusion, I just thought it was a really good piece because it urges the reader to consider the multifaceted landscape here outside of just the security threat China poses to Taiwan. Uh, what did you guys think? Yeah, I actually don't have a ton to add. I, I think it I think it was important that these three folks came out and sort of turned down the volume on the China-Taiwan threat rhetoric. The pundit class, especially among like the China-watching community, has a tendency to really hyper focus on like every little thing Beijing does that would confirm the bias of like a Chinese invasion. Like, oh, they're doing an exercise. Oh, they're preparing, they're exercising launching missiles at Guam at the same time that they're doing this other operation. And oh, they just increased their defense budget. Oh, did you hear what fucking Xi Jinping just said? And all like, they're, they're like the hype man. You know, like the DJ and the MC back in the 80s, the MC used to be the hype man for the DJ and the DJ was like the star of the show. It's like the pundit class is unintentionally being the fucking hype man for Xi Jinping in, in China. And again, like hip hop 90s episode. But this <laughs> this is not imminent. China knows that unifying by force at best is extremely costly. And it's useful to have three mainstream experts kind of affirming this, right? That we're not talking about anything imminent. And when China has these like long-term deadlines, this shit moves all the time. Five-year plans do or don't work out. Like you, you make a plan and then you change the plan when shit seems like it's not appropriate. You know, the goalposts can and do move the 2049 stuff versus 2039 or whatever. These dates don't imply that if you have to unify by force or something. Right. So like, this is a very serious issue. War is plausible. It could happen, but we should take some, some solace from the fact that even during the fucking hyper-rivalrous Trump era, there wasn't a single real crisis in the Taiwan Strait. That's kind of remarkable, you know? Part of the reason is because, like, nobody wins from that. And if we can be, like, responsible stewards and shape the ground in a certain way, like, if we're conscientious and statecraft, a war in Taiwan is, like, eminently avoidable. And so the voices of, of Bonnie and Ryan and, and Richard is something that's like more needed more in the China discourse, I, I think. And frankly, like if we if we play our cards right and we move closer to Taiwan, that's a in various ways that are not military in nature. It's not just that they're a demo fellow democracy. And so like we're actually living up to our sense of like solidarity with, with the democratic world and our values. It's that that shapes the ground favorably for us. That's something that we can do that we're on, we're, we have a strong justification to do and that China has, is 
is at a disadvantage there if you really want to think of the world as like this zero-sum competitive space with China. That's the kind of thing you ought to be doing, right? So like if you're progressive, you want the democratic solidarity. But if you're this real politic strategist who sees the China threat, this is a space that you can like safely engage in where we have the advantage, which is not the same thing when we're talking about like precision guided munitions arms races, right? It's not the same thing when we're talking about infrastructure investment in Central Asia or whatever. So um, we should play to our advantages more often. And this is like a, a space where there is one. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, you know, pushing us to consider the economic and diplomatic realms, not just the military, you know, gets us past this thinking that we need to keep continuing approving massive arms sales. You know, the Trump administration approved 8, point billion, or 8 billion uh, in sales of F-16 fighter jets and stuff yeah. that Taiwan, you know, may or may not need tanks, stuff like that for its defense. But there's so much more we can do for Taiwan too. And so much more that Taiwan can contribute to the global community with its uh, expertise in public health and in cyber defense and security. Um, you know, there's a host of things there yeah. to explore. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, I have three questions. The first one is from Dake Jello. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed Hunter's the only one on the podcast with a blue tick on Twitter. How do you go about <laughs> getting one? And if needed, can you <sighs> give me one? <laughs> I have to turn over to Hunter for this one. It used to be very easy, simply put. Uh, when I joined Twitter, I think it was a process of sort of triangulating your identity as a real person, not a bot. So the only thing you had to do was provide three hyperlinks to independently verify that you were a person. And, you know, a week later or less, they would give you the blue check mark. I don't know why they made it more Jeez. difficult. Yeah. Um, it definitely doesn't give me or shouldn't give me added credibility. You know, I'm just a you know, normal dude on Twitter tweeting crap. Uh, so yeah, definitely not an expert or, uh, you know, more, more of an expert because of that blue mark. Well, that's very interesting. I did not know that. Um, it was all mysterious to me, so that's useful to know. And to, uh, Dake Jello, I'll, uh, hook you up. Dake Jello, Jesus. <laughs> not to roast you, Hunter, or I guess I do, but how long have you had your Twitter account if you, uh, if it's been that long? I feel like it takes like a million years to get the tick or whatever, right? <laughs> well, no, like I said, it used to be super easy. I joined Twitter in 2010 or 11. You know, I used to blog when I was traveling in oh, South Asia before I knew what I was doing on the internet um, and had like four Twitter followers probably. But then I took a long hiatus from Twitter and only got back on when I was at CSIS around 2015 uh, because... They are prolific uh, tweeters, and I got more in the habit of tweeting and uh, engaging. The second question is from Georgetown Girl. Favorite feminist movies? And are there actually are there feminist movies that you know of? This is a very funny question because, like, literally last night I was watching a movie. Is an intersectional feminist movie sort of? Um, or that's the theme, but it's actually just a comedy that takes place in a high school. It's called Moxie. It's on Netflix. It's so good. It has Arnold Schwarzenegger's son as the like asshole, asshole guy who's like the antagonist uh, and Amy Poehler's in it. Anyway, it's worth watching. It's fucking really good, really good. And it is explicitly intersectional feminist. 
other than that, there were two movies that like stand out in my head. One is, I mean, they're both super old, but one is from like 2000, 2001 ish called The Contender, which nobody seems to have heard of anymore. But um, it stars Joan Allen, who also nobody seems to have heard of anymore. And she's basically selected to be the vice president. And uh, I think she was like a senator or something. And then she gets all this public scrutiny and media scrutiny because you're, you know, um, being considered for the vice presidency. And as part of that media scrutiny, there was all kinds of like unfair gender biased narratives about her, including like looking into her sex life and if she was a lesbian and if she had, there was like a rumor that she had been in an orgy in college with a bunch of frat guys. And like, that was supposed to be some black mark. I feel like nobody would care anymore these days, but it's, it's highly periodized in the sense that like 20 years ago, it still kind of blew people's minds to think that a woman could be vice president. But also, it was one of the first times that I ever saw a presentation that seemed very plausible where um, the media or the public was holding uh, women to a different standard than men. It sort of portrayed all that. It was kind of ahead of its time in that sense. And it was a good movie. It was like kind of a political drama, political thriller. Um, And then the other one is, which I actually started watching again recently just for nostalgia, G.I. Jane, which stars <laughs> Demi Moore. So this is actually part of like the, the Van Jackson canon or whatever. When I was in high school in the 90s, we didn't have fucking Google. We didn't have reality TV shows about military training and Navy SEALs and all that shit. The, and, and it was before 9-11. So we didn't have the expansion of the national security state where like everybody knew somebody who was in the military or whatever. So when I was growing up in high school in Orlando, Florida, I had one person in my entire world who had served in the military, one person, and he didn't even like to talk about it. And so I, I, I had no zero fucking knowledge about what the military was like, but I had wanted to like go into that, that world. You know, you know, you're about to go through military training. What does that entail? The only sources of information I had were movies which is a terrible source of information about what the military is like. Uh, so I, I had a handful of movies that I would watch uh, for another day to talk about probably, but one of them was G.I. Jane. So like they had all these training montages of, of Hell Week and Navy SEAL training at Coronado. And so cool. that was one of my guidebooks, basically. I used to watch that shit over and over. Um, and incidentally, I was like being introduced to this Again, the gender inequality issue via this very compelling story where Demi Moore shaves her head. Yeah, so there is, but I'm a cheerleader, which is basically showing the dangers of conversion therapy, but follows, but playing into the stereotypes of female, male, really good. Then the other one is actually a French movie, and the English title is I Am Not an Easy Man, or in French, Je ne suis pas un homme facile which is basically um parallel universe of the gender roles being switched. Hmm. It's in French, but it's so good and funny. Well, not exactly G.I. Jane, but it still sounds interesting. No. All right. Third question is from Caleb McNerney. I'm sure you saw that DMX died. What do you think about him, his politics, his music? And where do you rank him in, in, in him in hip hop? 
<laughs> DMX, man. He, <laughs> true story, the only concert I've ever been to in my life was the Rough Riders tour in early 2000, which is the year I graduated high school. <laughs> I, I'm not a big concert guy. I, I loved it. It was also terrifying um, because in the that late 90s period in Orlando, we were we were overrun by gangs. And they, of course, all showed out to the Rough Riders concert. There was like no, it was peace. There were a bunch of fights, but it was peaceful. Like nobody died. It had that scary edge to it, but it was fucking exciting. And DMX was uh, electrifying. To this day, he's, I said this on Twitter, like he's still on my playlist for when I work out. He's, his voice is pain pain is working out and it's like it's just drilled into my head i'm gonna be an old man i'm still gonna hear his ass barking in my head he's he's part of like the soundtrack of a section of my life you know uh and he will continue to be but i actually don't know his politics i never read his biography uh i know he was religious he actually held a prayer in the middle of the rough riders tour uh, the concert in 2000 it was very weird, unusual. Um, but he had like a pretty rough life. He was addicted to crack at several points. Uh, he had like two dozen children out of wedlock with different mothers. Like, he got arrested a bunch of times. It was a rough life. He was abused as a kid. But yeah, like in my head, the the value of him is I don't even remember any political messages that he had other than just like suffering, like giving voice to suffering. I think it was really funny actually if you saw like all the tweets when dmx died it's just a number of people that were like oh wait hey i know his music and i'm like isn't it like i swear all his music is always in like a third of the soundtracks like to montage scenes and stuff yeah this is again like that transition out of high school for me he had in the span of like 18 months he had three number one albums which it's either unprecedented or like Michael Jackson did it or so like, or like one other person did it, but that's like wild. And it happened to be at a time when I was of course, like deep into hip hop. So I had all the albums. He was like con constant rotation everywhere. And now to this day, when I talk about, uh, or when I think about like high productivity, I mean, not hip hop, just like for writing or publishing or whatever, I'm always thinking about this, like, triple platinum three albums in one year kind of success that is what i'm like always on the lookout for for like who's the dmx of international relations kind of thing i feel constantly inadequate about my own productivity partly because i haven't had those like three number one hits in an 18 month period you know um and so like <laughs> i'm looking for like who is the next like who's the closest to being a dmx in ir i haven't seen one yet and i'm I don't know, constantly writing hopes that like I can hit that mark at some point. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Uh, if you go to cottonbureau.com and search undiplomatic, you can find our merch. Um, if you want to rate us on iTunes and all that good stuff, please do. Catch you next time. Peace.